Hello, everyone, and welcome to the special edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Tara Stingley, a partner with Klein Williams in Omaha, Nebraska. On the program, we span the globe with updates on critical employment issues from ELA members in each region. Many of our members regularly represent institutions of higher education to address the unique issues employment and otherwise that arise in colleges and universities. And this includes the landmark sex discrimination law, Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972. This year marks the 50th anniversary of Title IX. So to mark that anniversary, today we're connecting with three members who have practices in higher education. Joining us on the program are Susan Llewellyn Deniker of Steptoe and Johnson in West Virginia, Mike Porter of Miller Nash in the Pacific Northwest, and Josh Salisbury of Sturgill Turner in Kentucky. Susan, Mike, and Josh, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks. Glad to be here. Thanks, Tara. So as I mentioned, our goal today is to reflect on Title IX, what it has meant to higher education and gender equity, how it has evolved, and where it might be headed. We'll be pretty big picture here today as we know the U.S. Department of Education recently issued proposed changes to Title IX regulations. And an ELA webinar addressing those proposed changes is scheduled for Thursday, September 8th. We'll have more information about that at the end of our podcast. But let me start with Susan. Susan, when you think of the history of Title IX, what really comes to mind? Thanks, Tara. Well, you know, as we reflect back on 50 years of this act, you know, when it was first passed, we all thought of it, and for a long time, as an equity in sports law. And it really had a huge impact on equity in sports. I've got two girls. I look even at the different sports that were available to them that weren't available to me when I was a young kid and what a difference it made there. But as it has evolved over the last 50 years, it's brought significant changes in terms of how the act is interpreted and applied. And so we look at this statute, it's 37 words, right? It's probably one of the briefest laws on the books anywhere. And yet 37 words have greatly changed in terms of their meaning and application over the years. So we look, it's become really a very complex regulatory scheme under Title IX that our institutions of higher education have had to grapple with. Over the years, we've seen changes come in the form of Dear Colleague Letters, In 2020, our clients know they saw big regulatory changes under the Trump administration. And now we have a notice of proposed rulemaking that is just a little light reading of about 700 pages about how it's about to change again. Probably more significantly, we've seen the issues evolve. So I talked about how originally this was seen as an act that impacted equity in sports, you know, a gender standpoint. And now over the years, we've seen those issues evolve from not just sports equity, but also issues of broader sex discrimination, sexual harassment. More recently, in the last decade or so, we've really been focused on sexual assault issues under Title IX, employment issues, which originally we really looked at Title VII for, right? Increasingly now, under Title IX, we look at issues in higher education to how that impacts employment decisions. And now we're grappling with issues like how do issues involving sexual orientation and identity fall under that? We've got lots of pending laws and regulations and guidance from the Department of Education on that. So it's been a pretty fascinating 50 years, and it doesn't look like these issues are slowing down. It's definitely been an interesting ride. And on that point, Josh, you know, when Title IX passed in 1972, 
talk to us a little bit about the history of Title IX over its 50-year lifespan. Sure. And, and there's so much we could cover. So much has happened over the last 50 years, as Susan alluded to there. But I think we can start by recognizing most would agree Title IX was long overdue. It was enacted more than 50 years after the 19th Amendment was ratified. And even then, almost a decade after Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But I think it's also interesting to look at things that still hadn't happened as of 1972. So, for example, in 1972, we were still a decade away from Justice O'Connor being appointed as the first female justice of the Supreme Court. And we were still 50 years away, for those in the Southeast like myself, who can appreciate this maybe, from Pat Summit at the University of Tennessee winning the first of her eight NCAA women's basketball titles. So this falls in right in the middle of some very critical points in history and some very interesting points in history as far as equity and achievement goes. You know, that said, I, I think one way we can break down the act's history is to look at some important developments in individual rights that Title IX has developed to protect. So Supreme Court, for example, did not recognize an individual right to sue under Title IX until 1979. That was the Cannon University of Chicago case, so seven years after its enactment. And it wasn't until 1988, long after, that Congress made it clear the act would cover all of an institution's programs and activities as long as any part of that institution received federal funds. And that was after some litigation back and forth on how far and how reaching the dollars would go to implicating Title IX's mandates and protections. Kind of fast forwarding there, 1992, Supreme Court recognized that monetary damages for students who suffered sexual harassment in school would be available. And that kind of jettisons this up to the modern climate that we're, we're dealing with frequently with Title IX these, these days. As Susan alluded to, you had that shift, right, from athletics to uh, dealing with sexual misconduct issues and other equity issues. And interwoven through all of this were efforts from the Office of Civil Rights at the department to help schools develop internal grievance procedures. That started as early as 1987, when we talk a lot about the, the regulations that we've seen over the last four or five years. But you know, OCR has been trying to help internal procedures for decades now. And then getting in specifically into sexual harassment in the late 90s, just before our Supreme Court set what we call the deliberate indifference standard for liability in teacher, student, and student on student sexual harassment lawsuits. So there's been a lot of developments as far as individual rights go over the history of Title IX, and there's been a lot of developments and shifts as far as how people viewed Title IX as important, why it was important, what areas was important to them. And so we've progressed from broader institutional issues, I think, really to getting into some significant individual protections as Title IX has evolved. So, Mike, I know you have significant experience in litigating Title IX issues. How would you describe the progression of those issues? And has it changed the way that institutions address issues around sex discrimination? So that's a great question. And Josh's lead in, I think, is perfect. The focus on individual rights over time. As Susan mentioned, there was in people's minds, athletics was where most people considered the impact of the law. And then within litigation, you saw discrimination claims as we traditionally think of them, which is like the Cannon case that Josh mentioned. And that sort of grew into harassment 
by an institution. In other words, a teacher or a professor engaging in the harassment. And in 1999, the Davis versus Monroe County Board of Education was really, I thought, a watershed moment that changed the nature of litigation. It's around the time that I started practicing. And so it sort of was the platform from which my experience sits. I do have to give a brief anecdote because in 1992, when, as Josh mentioned, monetary damages came around, I was an undergraduate student and my first legal experience followed service on a judicial panel where we sanctioned a student for sexual misconduct. And I got sued personally. Nobody called it a Title IX panel. Nobody called it a Title IX claim. And anyone on campus today, that would be the framework through which they view it. And so you know, that was respondent litigation. And there were these other avenues for litigating issues that arose under Title IX. But the cases Josh mentioned really changed the landscape. As I mentioned, I started practicing just around that time of Davis in 2000. And in K-12, so my practice splits K-12 and higher education. And we saw a lot of K-12 peer harassment cases. Maybe that's because Monroe was a K-12 case, but I had a background in student affairs before I went to law school. And I remember thinking somebody's missing the boat here because the peer harassment on campuses is of a, you know, a different nature and concerning nature. And really until the Dear Colleague letter in 2011, I don't know that people, litigants, plaintiffs, lawyers, lawyers in general looked at Title IX individual rights of action on a college campus as a primary means of seeking relief when they felt aggrieved by treatment either by the institution with respect to response to a sexual harassment or sexual misconduct claim or as a respondent. So the benefit to campuses, while litigation, I think most campuses would agree is not a benefit, was it does help increase the awareness of the rights. It helps in an advisory capacity, say, to be able to say, look, here's the exposure that you have if you don't act properly with respect to sexual misconduct. And then more recently, you know, maybe starting in the mid two teens, the respondent litigation really kicked up as we saw following the complainant litigation, I think that was more common after the Dear Colleague letter. But how has it impacted campuses? You know, it's, it's really hard work. And I think all of us have a lot of empathy for those who are involved and engage in decisions in this area, because they just have to be truly driven by the importance of the individual's rights. And it's created challenges along the way. But hopefully the litigation, again, helped bring attention by the campuses and by others to issues that, frankly, needed to be addressed based on my experience, both as a lawyer and in higher ed. And Josh, Mike and Susan both mentioned the regulatory landscape. As you reflect on developments under Title IX during the last 10 years, what impact on institutions have you seen? Mike really touched on it, some of the things he already shared. I think the landscape for Title IX regulation, I think you, if you talk to a lot of folks, they would tell you it's fairly characterized as good intentions hampered by administrative challenges and frustrations. So I'll give you an example. Due process requirements for parties to Title IX grievances 
have shifted from presidential administration to administration. That's just in the last four or five years. And if you're a practitioner like Mike or Susan or myself, you also know that due process requirements under Title IX also seem to vary from judiciary circuit to circuit. What you can expect for due process, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, I would imagine varies greatly from what you can expect here in the Sixth Circuit where I practice there. So that has certainly been developments that we're seeing and wrestling with. And, you know, schools were told for decades by courts, hey, we're going to cut you some slack, if you will, on how you conduct these proceedings, because we think you were, and I think they meant this as a nice thing, even if it doesn't sound quite as a compliment, that these universities were ill-equipped, the courts would say, to handle trial-type proceedings. And so the courts were not expecting universities to provide them. But again, I think if you talk to a lot of universities, they're going to tell you they feel it's exactly what they feel like they're supposed to be conducting is some kind of judicial or or quasi-judicial proceeding that maybe they didn't feel like they were prepared for or signed up for and now are actively working to get up to speed on so they can provide the due process that's expected of them. And and Mike hinted at this too. There, There are a lot of good intentions behind these requirements. We're wanting to serve the students and individuals at these schools better. We want to see better environments for them. But that comes with a lot of challenges in how to best deliver that. And it happened to be delivered by folks who probably didn't envision this as part of the job description when they got into higher education. So I think that's some of the challenges and impacts we've seen. So since the ELA is made up of employment lawyers, how has Title IX affected the employment aspect of work with colleges and universities? You know, there's been a lot of focus, I think, highlighting faculty behavior. I can tell you, you know, not just within raw, pure Title IX circles, if you will, but it tends to bleed over into other aspects of dealing with faculty and staff conduct. So, for example, I think you've seen courts in recent years who used to view FERPA, the federal privacy law, on being very black and white on when it applied to certain kinds of records and information about sexual assault. They're a lot less willing to let FERPA be cited as a basis for keeping faculty and staff behavior kept under wraps, right? There's this feeling like Mike talked about, about accountability, increased accountability for employee behavior. What that means is that as employment attorneys, we find ourselves dealing with as a collateral matter, not just the student complaints and concerns that come, but also the what is the proper response and what is or is not deliberate indifference in dealing with faculty who are accused of sexual misconduct under Title IX. So it's made it a lot more active for the employment lawyer. Josh, you raised some really good points there. And something that we've really seen institutions grapple with is, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about the evolution of Title IX, but it's really been, you know, until the last few years, really student-focused, student conduct-focused, and student-treatment-focused. And then, you know, suddenly there's been more of an emphasis on the fact that Title IX applies to employees as well. And the problem with that for institutions has been that they've got separate legal requirements that cover the same type of sex discrimination, sexual misconduct issues that at times are conflicting. That really got highlighted when we got the 2020 regulations, right? Suddenly we have processes 
that aren't required under Title VII or state employment discrimination or other types of misconduct laws don't comport well with things like faculty handbooks or employee handbook requirements. We've got conflicting policies at points. And the hearing process that was put into place under the 2020 regulations is something that we probably wouldn't be counseling our regular employment clients, right, to be doing with faculty or other types of staff. So it's really become a complicated area for institutions. And I think institutions are still trying to figure that out. And probably before they figure out their the expectations under the 2020 regulations and get a smooth process in place there, they're going to be looking at a change in that landscape with the proposed regulations. Well, it certainly hasn't been all smooth sailing in the Title IX arena. Susan, let's touch base with first with you. What are some of the biggest challenges for institutions that you've seen as Title IX has developed? You know, Josh has referred to some of those. And first off is that the landscape for them keeps changing, right? So they figure out what they're supposed to be doing under Title IX. And then, you know, for a period in the 2000s, they would change every time a Dear Colleague letter came out, right? And so they would switch gears and follow that. Then the Trump administration came in with these regs. We've got new proposed regs. Part of the problem is, is that the issues are increasingly complicated and the landscape keeps changing on requirements. The other thing, and, and Josh alluded to this a little bit before too, is that we now do have complex regulatory scheme in place here for Title IX for institutions whose primary objective, right, should be educating students. Now they've got to be providing um, hearings on campus. They really, you know, almost probably feel like they need to be many court systems with lawyers and expertise. It's a huge burden on these institutions. And thirdly, the issues tend to go beyond the scope of the walls of campus, right? So sometimes where we have student misconduct issues or other issues of a nature, it may cause some issues on campus, but we didn't have necessarily the PR nightmare that some of these Title IX cases have had for institutions. They're far-reaching. Institutions are limited sometimes in how they can communicate about them, but they are burdened with having to do this. It's This has really been a difficult area for institutions. And Mike, you've seen this firsthand because like Josh and me, you litigate in this area and you counsel institutions. And so I'd like to hear some of your insight on this as well. Sure. Thanks, Susan. You know, all of those things that you mentioned have a real human cost. People ask me why I left working on campus to be a lawyer. And I would say facetiously, I wanted to be at the other end of the telephone because when working in student life, it was not uncommon to be threatened to be sued. And this, I left before 2011. And now you're with the regulatory overlay and the attention, the work, it is hard work and it's a hard topic. And there are winners and losers, which pushes back against a lot of what student affairs people in particular are trained on, which is create educational moments and make everyone successful. And so I think that's been a tough transition. And then somebody is unhappy and somebody thinks that their rights were violated so often because there is often a winner and a loser. And we would never call them that, but that's going to be the perception of the individuals involved. And so you've seen a lot of turnover and you've seen a lot of turnover that is 
right in the middle of all the shifting regulatory landscapes. So that's been a big challenge for the institutions. And it's it's one that I know that they, they still struggle with. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. And we know the laws surrounding Title IX continue to evolve. And we appreciate you all breaking down these issues for us. Susan, Josh, and Mike, thanks so much for joining us on the program. If you'd like to connect with Susan, Josh, or Mike, please click on their names in the podcast description. Also, in anticipation of the ELA's Higher Education Council's formal request for comments to the U.S. Department of Education on the proposed Title IX changes, the ELA is hosting a special live interactive webinar on Thursday, September 8th, where colleagues, clients, and other interested parties are welcome to attend and share in the discussion. To register for this important webinar program, please go to ela.law backslash webinars or find a link to register in the notes to this podcast. In addition to connecting with our guests today, we also encourage you to reach out to any of our ELA lawyers around the world by selecting Find a Lawyer on the ELA website at ela.law. You can also review our upcoming and on-demand webinars, download articles and white papers, or access ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Tara Stingley. Thanks for listening.